thank you for being here tonight. Um, true to my promise, I think it's off a of mute. Um, we did not make this a big, widely announced, widely advertised kind of thing. That's not what this is about. Um, if God had wanted me to be a John MacArthur, then I would be sending out messages across the nation and around the world, touching and blessing thousands of lives. But God called me to be the John MacArthur of the First Baptist Church of Waterloo. And my responsibility is to, under his leadership, as best I know how, with my limited abilities, to feed us as a family. And if you are here as a guest, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. Thank you for being with us, and uh, we're honored that you would, would take the time to be with us this evening. I'm going to almost sound like I'm apologizing, but I'll make sure you know what you're going to get over the next 35 minutes of our time together. Um, obviously, to try to put together a definitive discussion on all that the Bible says about the issue of same-sex relationships, marriage, all that marriage entails, and all of that would take for most people, even John MacArthur, <laughs> weeks of preparation in doing this. This is more of a response to several of you that came to me and said, I don't know what to say when I go to work and somebody says, well, how does your church feel about this whole thing? What do you think about this? And so in a way, what you're going to be getting is tonight a, a skeleton. And I'm going to, when I go to my retreat this fall, I'm going to ask the Lord if he would deem it worth our time for us to dig a little deeper and perhaps do a series of four or five sessions on Sunday evenings about not just same-sex orientation, but a lot of the moral and ethical things that are going on in our, in our world around us today and how we as a church can respond. I think the foundation to the answer to those questions is almost always the same, but there are different iterations of it based on what the particular issue is. So I want you to understand that you're going to get an outline of what I believe the Bible says and what we believe and how we're going to stand as a church in the face of whatever may come in the months, weeks, months, and years to come. Um, and even that won't be clearly delineated because that's still a work in progress. At Hopefully at our next family meeting, you're going to begin working with us on... Um, working on our core documents to add some additional protection for us as a church family as we see to it that we maintain our autonomy um, in a state that is becoming more and more hostile to what the church is about. If you are coming expecting screaming diatribes and pounded fists, sorry, you're not going to get that because that's not where we are, and I don't think that's what we need at this time. We all know those lines. And um, we all know the Adam and Eve and Adam and Steve jokes. We don't need to hear those anymore. Um, I, for one, am tired of them. And I want us to talk seriously about how we can minister as a church family in a world full of people who are looking for answers and looking in all the wrong places for those answers. So with that in mind, I have a list that I will give you at the end of the service if you'd like to have a copy of it so you can take it home with you, read over it more. I would welcome questions, comments, um, additional insights, things that you would like to know, ways I can help, responses to specific questions that you may face as you, um, as you begin walking in this newly defined world that we're seeing blossom around us. And believe me, it's a whole lot more than just the same-sex marriage issue. If you haven't recognized that, recognize this is not about same-sex marriage. This is about foundational principles of freedom, but that's a topic for another night. 
we're going to look at four basic areas. First of all, we're going to begin with some general observations. I think it's true that we must lie down, lay down at the, at the foundation, at the basis of everything that we do. Then we're going to make some observations about same-sex relationships, some observations about marriage, and then finally some observations about the path ahead for God's people. So let's begin with some general observations. And I think we have to start from the very beginning with the fact that God desires to have a relationship with people. God created us to be in relationship with him. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says to us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants and desires a relationship with people. His love for us as, as his creation is unconditional. And he desires that we turn from our sin and from ourself and turn to him and have a relationship with him. But the problem is, is that we, we've messed things up. Our sin has marred us and making a relationship with God almost impossible. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Romans. And let's look, we're going to spend some time in Romans tonight, and so we'll probably kind of camp around there most of the evening, if not all of the time, it won't be, but, but for a lot of the time. The situation is that God created us with this desire to have a relationship, but he also offered us the opportunity to make the choice as to whether we would yield to him and follow him or follow our own instinct and our own wisdom. And those of you that are part of our church family that have been around me a lot over the last almost 10 years now know that I have come to believe that we can learn, we could, we could learn more about life and our relationship with God if we would just spend more time in Genesis 1 through 3 than just about anywhere else in Scripture outside of the New Testament life of Christ. Because we learn so much about every one of our stories. Every one of us is Eve. Every one of us has faced that decision. Do I do what God told me or do I do what I think makes sense to me? And sin has marred us. Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 makes this comment. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked on this. Some of us believe that we are born inherently with a sin nature that destines us to an eternity. I think most of us believe that because that's what Scripture teaches. But the thing that then confirms that is our sin. We sin. We make those sinful choices because we're sinful people by nature. We inherited that sin nature. And so because of that, we are marred. We are flawed. And that is a flaw that we cannot fix. And because of that, our relationship with God is virtually impossible. Well, it is impossible from our perspective. It's going to take something that God does for us. But I also need to make sure that we understand that not only are we marred spiritually, we also are marred physically. Paul tells us, matter of fact, let's just go ahead and look at it and then we'll discuss it. Turn over a page or two to Romans chapter 8. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that when sin entered into the world, it wasn't just humanity that was affected by it. All of creation was affected by our sinful 
choice. And it continues to be affected by our sinful choices. All of creation has been marred. God did not create lions to eat lambs. He created them to exist together. But because of the marring of sin, the world became, became out of sync. Creation became out of sync. And what has happened as a result of that is that as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. So he's going to talk about this in the context of what's going to happen when Christ returns and when things are made right again. He says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Why? Because the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Paul, in the context of talking about what's going to happen when Christ returns and makes all things new, by implication talks about the situation that we're in right now. And that is that the, that, that the creation, all of creation, has been subjected, he says, to futility. To this weed-infested, mosquito-ridden, by the sweat of our brow, laboring for the food that we eat life. That was not what was God's original intention for creation. All of creation has been marred. And that means that so have we. Now, if that's a new thought for you, I want you just to stop and think about it just for a minute. Because of our sin, we are no longer the creatures that God originally intended us to be. That's why we need a new body. We weren't created to age. We weren't created to have cancer cells. We weren't created to have diseases and sicknesses. We weren't created the way we are originally. And so all of creation now is marred by sin. And I believe, and I think Scripture bears out, that in our lives as we walk through this marred sinful existence, in every one of our lives, God has allowed a thorn to be placed. A besetting sin, as our grandparents called it. That sin that tends more than anything else to tempt us away from trusting in God and to put our trust in ourselves or our own resources. Now, sometimes it's not actually a sin. Sometimes it may be a defect. Paul tells us, if you want to turn over to 2 Corinthians, about the thorn that he was given. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about this wonderful vision that God gave him of heaven. And because of the temptation that he might have to boast about himself, he says in, verse, in the second half of verse 7, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger, literally an angel of Satan, to torment me so I would not exalt myself. Now, we don't know what this thorn was for Paul. Some believe it was poor eyesight. Some believe it was crippled. Some believe it was the, the, the burden of not having a spouse. There, there are a variety of things we don't know. And I think there's a reason why God doesn't tell us so that we cannot generalize, oh, well, that means if I have a gimp in my leg, that's my thorn in the flesh or whatever. No. What we do know is that 
Paul was being tempted to trust himself and rely on his own resources because he had had this supernatural, wonderful revelation from God. And so God says, in order to humble you, I'm going to give you something that will remind you that you can't do without me. You cannot live without me. And so we go on and we read in verse 8. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I believe, and I believe our lives testify to it, and if we were to take a poll, every one of us probably in this room could say, oh yeah, mine is this. The one thing I have to fight with more than anything else in my life, I have this one thing I have to fight. I believe that is something that God plants in our hearts to teach us that we must trust him. Jealousy, envy, psh, don't bother me one bit. Materialism, most of the time it doesn't big big deal. But boy, this sin over here, this I have to fight with sometimes multiple times a day. And that is the reminder that God says, I put that so that you would have to remember that you can't do this by yourself. By the way, just a little side note along with this, I want to make sure we remember that the temptation that that besetting sin brings us, the temptation to sin is not a sin. The temptation is not a sin. Sometimes we get the idea, if I'm even tempted to do something, that must be wrong. No, that's just a sign that we're sinners. James tells us in James chapter 1 about the whole concept of temptation. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says this. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away, enticed by... Let me back up to verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own sinful desires then after desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown gives birth to death so I want you to remember I want you to remember this in your own life and I want you to remember it when we talk about other areas of life that because we are marred we are going to be tempted Adam and Eve did not know sin and yet they were tempted. Temptation is part and parcel of being human. But sin occurs when we give way to that temptation and choose what we want rather than what God wants. As the wonderful author of the mystery of godliness says, all temptation is is just one more opportunity to say no. But unfortunately, we don't always say no, do we? <laughs> but when we say yes... That's when sin is birthed. I used to have a good friend who would call me on a regular basis. I feel terrible because I just can't help but glance whenever somebody walks by that's wearing a skirt that's a little too short. And I just, I, I'll glance. I said, glancing is human. Dwelling on it is, sinner, is sinning. But he would fight that in his heart. He said, I, I just feel terrible. I said, well, you should feel terrible because it's a reminder that you're a sinner. But it doesn't mean that it's a sin. Well, let's say something about the Bible so we can continue to lay this foundation. The Bible is God's gift to us to 
teach us and show us in clearly delineated principles and at times straight out facts what God expects out of those who are going to live in obedience to him. Sometimes they are very clear rules. You just don't do this, or you should do this, or you must not do that. Sometimes it's more in principle. And we have to understand what the principle is and how it applies to our lives. But the Bible is the unchanging plumb line by which we can understand what God expects from us as his children. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says very clearly, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So regardless of how we might feel about our choices, about their moral value, we must ultimately measure those choices on the foundational principles of God's word. No matter how I may try to rationalize and explain away my actions or what I want to do, I must go back to what does God's word say. And if God's word says something different than how I feel, to use our Henry Blackaby line, I've come to a crisis of belief. I've come to a crossroads. I've either got to decide I'm going to follow what God says or I'm going to follow what I say, but I cannot say, oh, I think for me it's okay to do this. We don't have that option. And when we make these sinful choices, when we fall into that sin, we recognize the fact that not only does that confirm our condemnation, our just condemnation before a holy God, it also invites us to acknowledge that we cannot conquer sin on our own. We need help. You see, our sin is not designed just to make us feel terrible. It's designed to make us feel needy. And that's what Paul tells us. Remember back in Romans chapter 7? If you're still in Romans, turn over to the end of Romans chapter 7. And I won't start all the way back at verse 13, but I'll, I'll pick it up in mid-paragraph when Paul is talking about the problem of sin. Let's just start at verse 15. He says, I don't understand what I'm doing. I love that. Paul's just so, you know, and even in translation, it just sounds so real. I don't understand what I'm doing because I don't practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. You see, Paul recognized in his sin that he was unable to do what he was supposed to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin that lives me. So I discovered this principle. When I do what is good, ah, evil is still with me. For in my inner self I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. So sin reminds us not just that we deserve God's punishment, it also invites us to cry out to him for mercy. And that is answered at the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ's death for our sin provides for us the help that we need to deal with the sin in our lives. But it only takes effect to those of us, as we talked about this morning in 1 John chapter 5, who believe and have put our trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us at the cross, surrendering our lives and our wills to Christ as Savior and Lord. Okay, anybody disagree with any of that? That's just all good Bible doctrine. All good, to use the Professional word soteriology, good doctrine of salvation. That's the gospel. How does that apply 
to the issue at hand for us today. Number one, the Bible clearly teaches that same-sex relationships are not acceptable to him. You'll have these references on your sheet. You don't need to write them down. In the book of Leviticus, it is made very, very clear. I'm not going to take a lot of time and explicate why I think that the arguments against Leviticus 18 and 20 are invalid. If you have a question about it, if somebody argues with you, you give me a call. But in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, it says, You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. Period. End of sentence. Full stop. This is not what God created us to do. If you turn to chapter 20 of Leviticus, verse 13. If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable thing. They should be put to death. Their blood is on their own hands. But this is not just an Old Testament concept. If you go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is listing the acts of the sinful flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom, he says? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves or greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have to add verse 11 to that reading. Paul says, you Corinthians, you should practice some of these things. But you see... God changed you. But he lists, among the lists of what the unrighteous do, the issue of homosexuality. And again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, another list that he gives to his young protege. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, he says, But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. Now, beloved, this is where the road will begin to fork between those of us who are faithfully trying to hear what Scripture says and those who want to hear what they want to hear. But the Bible makes it very clear that engaging in a sexual relationship with a person of the same gender is not his plan for his creation. I believe with all my heart that for some people, Their besetting sin is a same-sex attraction. I know we may disagree over whether a person can be born with a biological predisposition towards same-sex or whether it's all cultural. The bottom line in the end is it doesn't matter because God's Word hasn't changed. I will tell you this. I believe there are people, I have worked with them, who are born with a genetic predisposition to have an overactive heterosexual sex drive. 
And they just, they just have a high libido, and, it's just, and they have to fight every day not to fall prey to the temptation in their minds and in their hearts to think and feel and, 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 and even tempt, be tempted to engage in things that are not honoring to God. I know there are people who are born, and the day they are born, if they take one drink, they will be hooked on alcohol. They are born alcoholics. That does not mean that they should be able to go out and get drunk whenever they want to just because they were born that way. So whether it is something that is a predisposition with which someone is born, I have talked to people who have come out of homosexuality that said, I knew I liked boys better than girls when I was seven years old. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know how they were taught that. But that's not the issue. The issue is that doesn't change what the Bible says. And if so if it is, a, if it is their besetting sin, we have to go back to what we said in the introduction. How do we deal with besetting? Why do we have a besetting sin? We have besetting sins in our lives so that it teaches us that we cannot rely on ourselves and our own wisdom. We have to put our trust in God. Paul said, I hate the fact that I had this thorn in my flesh. And I begged God to take it away from me. But God says, no. It's going to stay with you so that you learn to trust me in that area of your life. Oh, Paul, you're fine everywhere else, but you have a hard time in this area of your life. And I want to use it to teach you. And I believe that some people, their besetting sin is that attraction. And so what we have to do is exactly what we said about every other sin. We have to weigh our decisions based on what does the Bible say. Not on how we feel, not on what we wished it would say, but what does the Scripture say. And we have to remind ourselves that just like with any besetting sin, mine, yours, when you became a Christian, did your, did your besetting sin go away? No, you still fight with it every day, don't you? And in the same way, as with any besetting sin, trusting Christ as Lord doesn't eliminate the temptation to sin, but what it does is it imparts a power in us to be able to resist the temptation, trusting God's grace in our weakness. And to be honest with you, that's all I have to say about homosexuality. God loves all of his creation. He does not love the sinful choices that we make. He offers us the gift of forgiveness through his son once we acknowledge the fact that our lives are out of sync with what God wants us to be. So let's talk about marriage for just a couple of minutes. Now, in a way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to talk biblically, but also we're going to talk about our contemporary situation that we're in right now with marriage in general. Not just with same-sex marriage. But fundamentally, let's start with the fundamentals. Fundamentally, marriage is an institution that was designed by God for one man and one woman. So in God's eyes, there can be no marriage between two people of the same sex. It can't be. There, it can't be a marriage. It can be anything else, but it can't be a marriage. Not in God's eyes. In Genesis chapter 2, it makes it absolutely clear. A man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That is what marriage is. It didn't stay there in Genesis. Jesus repeated that same line in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. And Jesus did not generalize by saying, and one person will go to another person, they'll become. No, he said, a, a man and a woman will come together. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul reiterates the principle again. So fundamentally, and let's just get this straight in our minds. I don't think any of us would disagree, but let's just make sure we all understand. Fundamentally, marriage is an institution designed not by law, not by government, not by man, but by God. And when God designed marriage, he designed it for one man and one woman to live together for life to his glory. 
and with his help and his guidance along the way. So if that's the way God created it, it is impossible for two people of the same gender to be married in God's sight. It's just not possible. No matter what the government says, no matter what kind of certificates they get, it's not possible. Now let's talk about where we are today. This makes me so amazingly sad. In America today, we have to acknowledge, whether we, whether we like it or not, we have to acknowledge that marriage today has both religious and secular aspects to it. In American culture, if you come to me and say, Pastor, will you marry us? What do they have to do? They got to go down to the courthouse and they got to get a marriage license. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why? Why would them coming here before God to join as husband and wife, why should that be, why should we have to get permission from the state in order for that to happen? I have no idea. George Washington got married without a marriage license. But over 200 years of history, 200 and now 39 years of history, we have determined that the state would make the decision about who could and could not be married. And so if you come to the First Baptist Church of Waterloo and you want to have a marriage, the first thing you have to do is you've got to go get you a marriage license. There is a group of libertarians, and I'm not much of a libertarian. I have a son who's a, who's a grand libertarian, but I'm not one. Um, but the libertarians are really up in arms over this, not over religious reasons. They just say marriage is not a privilege that the state can endow. It is a right that people should have. They should not have to go to the state to ask for permission. You, you don't get a, you don't get a, a, a birth license. You get a birth certificate. You don't get a parenting license. You just have kids, and then when you do, you get a birth certificate to register that they're registered their birth. So why not get a marriage certificate? Why do you have to get a marriage license? But I, won't, I don't want to get into that right now. But we have to acknowledge that whether we like it or not, we now live in a, in a society where marriage has both religious connotations and aspects to it and secular Everything from taxes to insurance to all kinds of other things that go into that issue. We cannot, as the church, define for the state the secular aspects of marriage, but neither can the state define for the church the religious aspects. Okay, thank you. Make sure you amen the first half of the sentence, too. We cannot, as the church, dictate to the state how they will define the secular aspects of what marriage means. But neither should the state be allowed to define for us. The church should have the right to determine whether or not a secular marriage will be recognized by the church. In other words, we should have the right as a religious organization, as a religious institution, as a body of people who hold to a common faith to determine whether we will choose to recognize a marriage, a secular marriage, as being legitimate in our eyes or not. But we also have to recognize the fact that the state already makes the same determination regarding religious marriage. I don't know how many of you read the text. I'm a, I'm a boring person, I guess. I read almost every word of the deliberation of the Supreme Court in the Oberfeld decision. And Justice Roberts asked Chief Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, got his comeuppance when he asked the attorney for the famous same-sex attorney about, so are you saying that 
that we should force religious organizations to recognize marriages in violation of their conscience, we wouldn't do that to them. And the attorney said, oh, go back to the Treaty of Tripoli and the Eats of 1797. We have always decided whether or not we would recognize religious marriages or not. And the Chief Justice had his mouth shut. I wished he had done his homework better. But the reality is the state, ever since they banned the common law marriage concept, you may think we still have common law in this country, but we don't. Common law was outlawed in the 1950s. They'll only recognize you being married if you, have, if you go and get a license and then get witnesses and sign that you're married, and then you can be legally recognized by the state as being married. Now, there's still a few places where people will get by with it, but it's not legal anymore. So we need to understand the state has already stepped in and said, you don't own marriage. We do. You see, whether we like it or not, the church in America is comprised of persons who basically make up a subset of the larger set of American life. So our task becomes to continually promote our rights as a subset to define the behavior of those who are within the subset. We must continue to stand for the right to say the people who will be part of this community will adhere to guidelines that we set out, not that the state sets out. That will be our next biggest battle. That is why Seven years ago, six and a half years ago, when I became your senior pastor, you heard me say, we will no longer perform any weddings for someone who is not a member of our church or immediate family to an active member of our church because the wind was already blowing. There are churches up in the Northeast right now who have a common practice of using their church as an open wedding hall for anyone that wants to have a wedding. They'll perform weddings for anyone that wants one. And now all of a sudden they decided they don't want to perform same-sex weddings, and guess what? They're being taken to court. Because now that it's a civil rights issue, you're discriminating. You've been offering open public access, and now you're denying public access. And so even though it may seem strange to you, and the day is going to come, can I be the first one to tell you? Within the, probably the next two years, we will ask every member of our church to sign a copy of our revised Constitution and Bylaws to protect us as a church. So you'll sign that, not because we don't trust you, but then we can say we will not perform a wedding or other service for anyone who is not a registered member of our church and have verified that by signing our core documents. It has nothing to do with our trust for you. It has to do with protect us from those that are outside of us. We have to build the wall higher, but we keep making doors for people to be able to come in. Okay, that's another topic. Sorry to me to get off on that tangent. I think the other thing we have to do, and this is something that's being talked about every time I get with pastors, and it is a heart-wrenching conversation. We are grieving, and they're blaming guys my age. So there you go. We seem to be the sandwich generation. If you're between 50 and 60, you're blamed for everything. Do I hear an amen out there? Uh, yeah. Um, the old folks say, we're too old. We don't have anything to do with it. The young ones say, you're, you're the one that's doing this to us. But... We in the church, now listen carefully, I don't, want, I don't have time to go into this deeply now, but I'll be glad to talk about it later if you want to. We have got to begin thinking more deeply about the way that we define all of marriage, 
and go back to a more biblical standard for marriage. Let me just give you one example. I don't want to open up a can of worms, but I've got to give you at least one example. Let me start by asking a simple question. If a, if a same-sex couple goes down to the courthouse and gets married in the state of Illinois, they are legally now husband and wife. If they want to come and join our church as husband and husband or whatever they would be, do we have to recognize that marriage is legitimate? No, because the Bible says that is not legitimate. Do we believe that if two people have an extramarital affair and they're unrepentant and they leave their spouses and divorce their spouses and marry one another, that that marriage should be blessed by the church? What does the Bible say? They're living in adultery. But what do most churches do? I'm not going to say we do it because I've never had that situation since I've been here. But what most churches will do is they'll say, you know what, we can't marry you, but go down to the courthouse and get married down there. But when you come back, guess what? They're husband and wife in the church's eyes. You see what we did? We won't do the dirty work, but we'll accept the dirty work that somebody else does. And that was wrong of us. We sacrificed our ethical standards of what biblical marriage should mean in order to save people's feelings. And as a result, we let the state define things for us that were contrary to what the Bible clearly teaches. And so we're going to have to spend some time talking about, in the broader church, what does it mean to define holy matrimony? And how are we going to respond? Because I hear the argument on a regular basis. Oh, well, you'll take that couple. They're just fine. Even though the Bible clearly says that 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 marriage is illegitimate. Or a believer married to an unbeliever. Scripture clearly says you should not be married. Why does your church recognize that marriage but won't recognize this one? Because we're hypocrites. That's why. I'm sorry. I'm getting off on tangents again. But we're going to have to think about that. And not just at First Baptist Water, but as the church in general, as the evangelical church, how are we going to redefine, how are we going to lovingly say to a couple, if you choose to get married against the scriptures and against the wishes of your church, we will love you, but we will not accept what you're doing. Any more than we would accept an open, unrepentant sin than any church member would, would be involved in. Observations about the path ahead, then we'll finish. Thank you for your patience. Number one, now you're going to hear my heart. You know me. Number one, we must, must, must be gentle and ready to answer those who ask us for what we believe. There is nothing to be gained by marching with placards down the street. There's nothing to be gained by trying to try to pick a fight around the water tank or the water, you know, whatever, at your coffee pot at your office. But if you are asked... That's an invitation governed by the Holy Spirit for you to be able to share lovingly what you believe. And I hope you can build it off of what you've heard today. Secondly, we should always remember that God's love for people in same-sex relationships, for them as people, is absolutely unconditional. But his criteria for a relationship with them is no different than for that of any other person. They have to repent of their sins, surrender their wills to Christ as Lord, accepting his payment for their sins on the cross. Paul said to the Corinthian church, and at one time, you were like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. God loves the world, but his holiness demands that we must repent of our sins, turn from ourselves, turn to Christ, and receive him as Savior. 
Number three, we must continue to stand firm on the truth that all persons can be loved even when their life choices are contrary to God's will. That's not always easy. In talking with same-sex oriented persons, we should always emphasize God's love for them, His plan for them, and the natural law that lives in all people and calls us to abandon trusting in what seems natural to us in order to allow Him, meaning God, to guide us in the direction that He would have us to go. That's a long sentence built off of Romans chapter 1. So I don't have time to say a lot about Romans 1. I may save that for this series that we're going to do probably next spring. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that in all of us there is this natural law that is planted there by God. This sense of rightness and wrongness. I have only had the privilege of counseling one-on-one with probably a dozen same-sex oriented people in my ministry life. But I will tell you that of those 12 or 13 people, without exception, every single one of them said to me, do you think I would want this if I could choose? I would do anything not to have, you see, because deep in them, they know that it's not the standard. There is this natural law, but then Paul goes on to say that because they abandoned that law and don't listen to what, to what seems natural to them in their marred, sin-twisted self, then God gives them up and they take the consequences of their actions. But the same thing's true for us. It's true for all of us. Well, I just have a temper. That's the way I am. I can't help it. You just have to accept me for the way I am. No, we don't. I just have to tell everything I hear. I'm sorry, I'm just a blabbermouth, but you'll just have to forgive me. No, we don't. Not until you admit the fact that that's a sin. And you repent of that and say, I need help. We must always remember that all of us have a besetting sin, and our besetting sin is no less reprehensible in God's sight than any other person's, even a person with the same-sex orientation. Thank you. That is one of the hardest things in today's world. We've become so divided that it is hard for us to understand and to acknowledge the fact that while we may be, I can't even think of the best word to use, we may be totally put off by the concept of two men or two women engaging in intimate relationships with each other. And it just, it disgusts us at our own personal level. Our sin disgusts God in the same way. And every time we yield to it, his heart goes out for our sin. But most importantly, we must pray Pray, 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 pray. We should pray for people who are struggling with same-sex attractions. That they would understand that that is something they can yield to God and he will give them the power to work through it. We must pray with those who have succumbed and are in same-sex relationships. We must pray for those who have found in Christ the power to resist their temptation so that they can be a testimony to others. And we must pray that we can be a light that just like we do with everything else that we do as a church family, we stand up and say to the world, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to be like this. There is an answer. It doesn't mean that you suddenly go out and have a wife and four kids. It means that just like all the rest of us, you learn how to take that besetting sin in your life, give it to God, 
and say, I'm going to live in accordance with His Word, His ever-true, never-changing Word. That's all I have to say to you tonight. Thank you for your patience. This is the stand that we take as a church. I do not believe, no, let me say it the other way around, and you are welcome. I probably shouldn't even say this. This is the last thing I say before we finish. I believe there are Christians who have fallen into the deception of same-sex relationships. I have people say, you cannot be a Christian to be a homosexual. I want to say, then you can't be a Christian to be overweight. You can't be a Christian to be an alcoholic. You can't be a Christian and be a backbiter. You can't be a Christian and be an idolater. You can't be a Christian to be an adulterer. Christians can be deceived and fall into sin because they stop listening to God. They become prodigal. They move away from God. It does not mean you cannot lose your salvation. So either they were never saved to begin with or they're still Christians and they've just gotten away from God. And we need to lure them back and woo them back, love them back, help them understand that there is forgiveness and a fresh beginning in Christ. But I believe that we have to continually stand and say that we serve a God who is both righteous and loving. He is holy and just and merciful and gracious. And he reaches out to every one of us in our sinfulness and says, let me show you a better way. Give me your heart. Give me your life. Give me your sin. And let me show you how together we can rise above it. Let's pray together.